Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get to our very cleverly themed episode, a quick (laughs) shout out to Christy. Thank you for joining our Patreon and supporting the show. And thank you to Suzanne for updating your pledge. Thank you both. And listeners, if you haven't done this yet, uh, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and some stars for the show, it makes a huge difference and lets folks find us more easily. So a recent review from The Best Theo, quote, love this show. It is in all caps. I've been listening for years and every show teaches me something or provides a new perspective and on an old issue that suddenly makes the boring old idea exciting and new. End quote. First of all, the idea that we've been doing this long enough that someone could say, I've been listening for years. <laughs> they said I years. saw your brain explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is certainly one of the best Theos out there. And thank you for that review. Yeah. So um, now, as I deal with the march of time yeah um (laughs) let's get on with their episode and on with the celebration because it's mummy's day you see what we did there can't say we're not occasionally current yeah so this week as you might guess we'll be talking about (laughs) mummies um and not just the ones you always hear about we're not we're branching out past the inca mummies and well we were gonna not do any egyptian mummies but we got one for you uh but mostly or do we have one Mm. um Mm. mostly we're covering relatively new ground to you Mm -hmm. and uh just as clarification to any listeners not in the u.s here it is mother's day uh right around when this episode is coming out i know that else in the uk it's a different day anyway that's why that's we're very clever okay i would like to start us off With the story of a truly unique individual, the 18th and 19th century moral philosopher and deeply strange dude, Jeremy Bentham. Quick question. And most, yes. Who? Yeah. uh, Well, if you're not super into utilitarianism, uh, you may not have heard of him, but he's the father of utilitarian philosophy. Uh, We're not going to get too into his uh, his moral precepts because it's not that kind of podcast, but uh, he's a fascinating individual. Um, so, you know, if you want to do a, a Wikipedia dive sometime, uh, I recommend just entering Jeremy Bentham into the old search bar. But what I'm particularly interested in telling you about, Amber and listeners, is more towards the end of his life. Oh. So most of this information <laughs> comes from Atlas Obscura, but some of it also comes from Smithsonian Magazine, CrimeMuseum.org, and the CBC. Thanks, Canada. Thanks, Canadian taxpayers. Philosopher Jeremy Bentham led an unusual life. As well as being a fascinating radical thinker in the 18th and 19th centuries, he had a walking stick he called Dapple, a pet bear, a teapot he referred to as Dickie, and an elderly black cat he named the Reverend Sir John Langbourne. What was the bear's name? 
I couldn't find it. Bentham is known for many accomplishments throughout his life. He produced a large body of writing that influenced and supported utilitarian theories, was a co-founder of the important Westminster Review publication, helped to establish the University of London, and devised a unique type of prison known as the Panopticon. Oh. Yep. Oh, no. So, I mean, his view, his dream, not dream, his his vision, that's the word I wanted, for the Panopticon is not what it's become. Okay. Um so yeah, don't not like the don't. it's not like the Foucauldian panopticon. It's like a more. I think he developed it from Bentham. Okay, because Bentham was the one who came up with the idea of um, if you are constantly watched, you're less likely to to crime, and so it was this idea of like a central tower uh, and an entirely sort of um, well see through prison, more or less. Um, so yeah. So when Bentham died in 1832, he left behind a will with a highly unusual request regarding his remains. As the founder of modern utilitarianism, the philosopher believed it was ethical to do the most good for the most people. He donated his body to science, but requested that once researchers had dissected his remains, they mummify his head and preserve his body dressed in his own clothes and padded out with hay for display. In this way, he would become an image of himself, what he termed an auto-icon. The philosopher spent much of his life preparing for his death. In 1822, ten years before his actual passing, he commissioned a silhouette for use in 26 memorial rings left to bereaved friends and family members. The rings were fairly standard for the Victorian era, but Bentham's decision to donate his body was more of a social taboo. Bentham had zero problem with going against taboos and social niceties. That was one of the tenets of his philosophy, that just because something had always been done a certain way doesn't mean that it's the best or right way to do it. So for 10 years prior to his death, Bentham purportedly carried in his pocket a pair of glass eyes that were to be embedded into his embalmed head. Um, And just for fun, another piece of information, he used to take them out of his pocket and uh, show them to dinner guests. Just be like, here's my eyes. Here, however, Bentham's plan went awry. Every time I see that word, I think of my dad, because when he was young, that was a word that he always saw and never pronounced, like he never heard it out loud. And so he thought it was Ari for a long time. So every time I see the word, I want to say Bentham's plan went Ari. But yes, it did. His face was grossly disfigured in the process of preserving it, and a substitute wax replacement had to be created. If you want to, listeners and Amber, you can Google Jeremy Bentham head and see his mummified head complete with those glass eyes. And it's uh, it's not the prettiest, but there it is. At the time, most Victorians were opposed to donating their bodies to science <laughs> because they believed. <laughs> I guess Amber Googled it. It didn't go great. It's not what you want when, you know, but, you know, he wasn't there to see it. I'll just continue, shall I? At the time, most Victorians were opposed to donating their bodies to science because they believed an intact body was necessary for admission into heaven. Bentham, an avowed atheist, didn't want to pay the church for a burial. Instead, he requested that his auto-icon be brought along to meetings and social gatherings he would have enjoyed in life. 
Philip Schofield, director of the UCL's Bentham Project, said, quote, For the first 20 years, the auto icon stayed in the house of his surgeon, Thomas Southwood Smith. The auto icon only came to University College in 1850, and it came because Southwood Smith moved to a smaller house and decided he didn't have room for his non-paying guest, end quote. The real embalmed head was placed on the floor between Bentham's legs where it resided until 1975, when it was kidnapped by a group of students demanding 100 pounds for charity. The university paid 10 pounds, and the head of the great moral philosopher was returned. Since 2002, Bentham's real head has resided in a climate-controlled storeroom at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. Those with appropriate reasons to pay a visit may still do so, by appointment. So that's... Jeremy Bentham's whole deal. He wanted himself to be, you know, uh, dissected for science and he wanted his remains to be preserved. Uh, They weren't preserved as well as they could have been, which is why the wax head. So if you look at Jeremy Bentham auto icon, if you Google that, what you'll see is a relatively normal looking head, human head atop what is, you know, the padded out remains of Jeremy Bentham. That's not his real head. That's a wax replica. Um, That's not the end of the story, though. I have another bit here, and it's not quite about mummification, but I wanted to touch on it because it's related to Bentham's head. And it may be an example of science being more about could than should. I'm not sure. Since Bentham wanted to donate his remains to science and was very sort of he wanted to do the most good for the most people, perhaps this would have been in accordance with his wishes, but I'm not sure. But they cloned him. This also comes from (laughs) – they did not clone him, to my knowledge. Bentham Park. This – (laughs) This comes from uh, Atlas Obscura in 2017. And I will say I looked for follow-up pieces to this to see if there was any publication on this study, if it's been done. If there is, I haven't found it. So there, you know, there might be more updates in the future. Who knows? Bentham had asked a friend, again, the surgeon Thomas Southwood Smith, to embalm his head using traditional New Zealand Maori methods. The process, he was essentially smoked and fitted with the eyes from his pocket, didn't work as hoped. The result is not quite party appropriate. I mean, he looks like he's been smoked. Today, the darkened, leathery, expressionless head is usually kept locked away. But now, as part of a wider university project, the head has been brought back out for display. This exhibition, called What Does It Mean to Be Human?, puts Bentham's head on show alongside that of Egyptologist Flanders Petrie. Or Petrie. It's Petrie, isn't it? Flanders Petrie? I think it's Petrie. <laughs> I always see it and think Flanders Petrie because my brain Frenchifies everything. The exhibition posits, what does the scientific interrogation of our dead bodies tell us about how we think about ourselves? No one's entirely sure why Bentham wanted to be preserved in this way, though it's possible that he, likely an atheist, didn't want to give as I said before, large amounts of money to the church for his burial, and both cremation and secular burial were basically unheard of at the time. Others have suggested that he might have intended it as a joke of sorts, or been attempting to encourage more people to donate their bodies to science. As an advocate for abolition, women's rights, and the decriminalization of homosexuality, Bentham was reliably ahead of his time. Curator Subhadra Das said in a statement, quote, The exhibition positions Bentham's head within the context of his scholarship and his beliefs, with reference to prevailing ideas of the time about death and dead bodies. It asks the question, why did he believe donation was important, and forces us to ask what that means to us today, end quote. But there's another interest, Bentham's genome. 
Mark Thomas and Lucy Van Dorp, both of the university's Department of Genetics, Evolution, and Environment, have been attempting to extract Bentham's DNA from his head with cutting-edge technology and assistance from London's Natural History Museum. This, Subhadra Das told The Telegraph, is like, quote, looking at the shredded pages of a book, so much information is missing, end quote. It's hoped that by testing Bentham's DNA, scientists may be able to shed light on a 2006 theory that he had autism spectrum disorder, which uh, genetic tests can reveal certain autism risk factors. This diagnosis might also explain his unusual post-mortem requests, since the forensic psychologists behind the theory write, autism spectrum disorder, quote, renders more understandable the oddness of these utilitarian desires, end quote. And... I will say from the little I know about Jeremy Bentham, um, he did seem to be quite fixated on, on death and bodies. I, I remember, and this, this might be apocryphal and I'm, I'm saying this, you know, with full acknowledgement that this is something I heard somewhere that he, um, applied to, like he lived in a town in England and applied to sort of the, whatever the equivalent of like the zoning board was Mm -hmm. to ask if it was okay if he displayed preserved corpses in his yard and so this kind of i don't know it it seems like he had an odd pattern of of fixation certainly his mode of thinking was very very different from what was sort of de rigueur at the time for victorians so it just seemed really interesting and as soon as you said you wanted to do an episode on sort of unconventional mummies this is the first one i thought of Well, thank you for sharing. I didn't know a single thing about him. Um, But funny that you should mention something. Uh, It takes place in the 19th century. Something that involves apocrypha. 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 Something that involves apocrypha. Something that involves... I drive a Chevy apocrypha. Something that involves displaying preserved bodies on the lawn. Um, Go on. (laughs) All of these things are things that your story shares with my story, which is a story of um, two mummies that are very near and dear to me, um, nearer, literally near, nearer than they are dear right now. Um, <laughs> and so these are the Philippi mummies. And so are you familiar with them at all, Anna? I am. I've read about them before. Have I retained anything about them? No, not so okay, much. So, so you know tell me again. Exist. I'll be surprised. Okay. I do. So in Philippi, West Virginia, the county seat of the county I'm from um, in West Virginia, um, there is the old railroad depot that is now the historical museum. And so it's a uh, tiny little museum. It's basically as big as like a, you know, like a small train station, like, you know, like I have been in a small train yeah, station. You just go, there's like a ticket counter and like some seats. And like, that's kind mm-hmm. of the whole thing. Um, so it's that much space, but converted to a museum. So there's like various, various things that are relevant to the history of the county, but curiosities. No, no, they're not. No, of... they're not really curiosities. Um, so Philippi was the site of the first land battle of the civil war. So a couple weeks a few day, I don't know. Um, so <laughs> shortly after the battle at Fort Sumter, which was a naval battle and like the first like actual military engagement of the American Civil War, there was what was called the Philippi Races. And this took place out in Western Virginia. And that's Philippi. So there's stuff that has to do with sort of the 
sort of the, the birth of the town and the role of the town in sort of the like sort of Western front of um, the Civil War and then also just, just just stuff like there's like the the sign from like the gas station that used to be in town like okay. that, that's just sort okay. of like stuff that's meaningful to the county. But if you go, uh, you pay a dollar and they let you in to a little room that um, it like has like air fresheners in it and there are two mummies. And so these are the Philippine mummies and they are the remains of two women um, who were preserved by a man named Graham Hamrick. And um, Graham Hamrick is what we might today know as banana pancakes. Like he was a, <laughs> um, he was a sort of like mad scientist type. Um, and so there's a lot of apocryphal stuff about him. There's stuff that sort of, uh, there was a book that was published about like the history of Barber County in like the sixties. Um, I don't know the person's sources. Um, and so he was, he had a farm, um, out in Barber County, and he was obsessed with like unlocking the secrets of the pharaohs. And by read like close reading of of the Old Testament, he figured out the rest. Notably written by pharaohs. No, well, no, like you know, like in the like before the Exodus, you know, like talking yeah. about that. He found in like that section um, in the Old Testament, he found a recipe for embalming fluid. And um, he, um, <laughs> uh, some sources will say that he practiced his, he practiced it on like fruits and vegetables. Um, there's a West Virginia Explorer article that says that he practiced this first on um, content note for something like quite gruesome coming up momentarily. Um, the, on the decapitated head of a black man well, I don't like that. I don't, I don't know. And also like, I don't think we're going to, yeah, I, we're going to assume that most of this comes with a very heavy citation needed, but. Well, um, considering <laughs> what we actually know about what he did, I don't know. That's not um, so far. And okay. then, um, and then an arm. So he, okay. and it, and it worked. Um, and so he, um, he never shared the recipe. Um, and because he was like, well, you can find it too. It's right there in the Bible. And so the things that I find quite apocryphal are sort of like, he like received a patent, but did never want to profit off of it. And like all these sort of things of like, he got, got an award, but he didn't, he didn't accept it. Like kind of things that are like, okay. Um, but what he did do in 1888, the, the head thing worked out, the arm thing worked out. And so then he Bought some humans off of uh, what was it called? The Allegheny, like a coroner? No, no, no. Off of um, the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Which, oh no! Until it was oh, that's so much worse. Until uh, like a few decades ago, it was closed. It was it had been known as the the Western State Hospital. Um, and okay. then I think it closed during like the Reagan administration when like the like there was the shift in sort of state funding like for uh, okay. mental health. Um, so the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is um, the next county over for me. And it's like a big 
Ugh. It's a big spot for like people to go on like paranormal tours and like haunted yeah, tours. It's, and it's the, like um, it's what's the like spot in the Philly? Uh, well, it's like Eastern State Penitentiary. Yeah, Eastern, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I like kept like laughing at is there's like an ad that keeps coming up that says Mother's Day special, ten dollars off. I think it was fourth floor tours. And I'm like, what's on the fourth floor for moms? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why is that special for moms? Yeah, the fourth floor tour, you get 10 bucks off, moms. I don't know what they're going to, and it's got like happy flowers. I don't know, weird. But mm, the Trans-Allegheny mm, Lunatic mm, Asylum mm, mm. Um, was was a terrible place, as most places for people that have been diagnosed with mental illness, whether or not they were put there or like needed to be like whether or not they had a mental illness or not. Yes. So the thing that I never really knew having been to the museum multiple times until looking into it a little bit more, um, it seems that what were mummified were the remains of one woman, I think in her forties, one woman in her twenties who I saw in one place died in childbirth. And then I also saw that he had um, embalmed a newborn Okay. So, um, so what happened related? So, so what happened was, um, he paid the hospital, I guess. I, I think remains. Uh, yeah. And so they had been unclaimed. So this, like, I don't know. I find this like deeply upsetting. And also there is again, apocryphal, even though it's on display and I read it and it's next to her body. There's a letter written by letter reportedly written by, one of the mummies, one of the women who were mummified. One of the human people, to yes. her, To her brother or to her family, like, asking to come home oh, and, like, asking to, like, and so, um, and so <sighs> you have to think about this is, like, this is a time when, like, people get committed for all kinds of reasons, especially women. Um, did she get pregnant before she was committed? after like yeah. i don't i don't know but what happened we don't know the was story. he was able to successfully mummify them and was like i did it and um they were part of like a tour and stuff but ultimately they came back and in 1899 he died and he wanted to be embalmed and so he left instructions and like a bottle of embalming fluid but his heirs were like no Hmm. and they he's just buried in philippi uh because they were like we're not okay. doing that and but then like that stuff was eventually lost so you can't really test it um and there have been individuals who want um to test the mummies and the museum staff don't want that to happen because they don't want to like disturb the remains which they are on display and, yeah, I was going to say, um, you can just you're already, go in. It's very just, easy to find photos of them. In 1985, they had been on display for a long time. And then the this um, horrible flood happened throughout West Virginia. So the fl- And so the railroad is right next to the river, which is a good place to put a railroad, usually. Um, Often. Great place to put a, a train station next to the railroad. So it's right by the river, uh, sort of like in the lowest Not part of town. Not a great place to put mummies and the mummies were washed away and um well other things i think there were other things that he had like other things from like the uh hammer collection had been like washed away and like were lost the mummies were damaged in the flood and then um you can read the very like colorful descriptions of the previous like 
museum proprietor that they started like mildewing. Oh dear. And so they put them out on the courthouse lawn in 85 to like dry out. To dry out. And uh, story doesn't get better. (laughs) um, And so now they are in, they're in the museum. A a room with air fresheners. And, and so, you know, they, there's a smell, but it is something that is, I don't know, really like incredible and macabre and just like, um, and heartbreaking and, heartbreaking. and just really fascinating yeah. and awful. It's this combination of, I'm very unsure about my emotions right now. I mean, yeah. most of them are bad. And, and I feel so bad about this. This was, this was picked up on sort of like the roadside attraction circuit. And the guy who used to run the, the museum, I don't know, he kind of leaned into like a carnival barker thing. And, mm-hmm. and so he was very famous for being like, have you saw the mummies? And it became like a catchphrase. And so it like smacks of like classism. And it's just like, it's really bad, like all the way down. But like at the heart of it is a story of the kind of research that happened in the 19th century and the things that happened to sort of like um, the dispossessed. And, yeah. Um, it's also a story about the the treatment of of the mentally ill, mm-hmm. or at least the purportedly mentally yeah, ill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't know who these women were, um, really. But yeah, if you wanna if you wanna head on over, moms get ten dollars off the fourth floor tour. Well, <laughs> um, but I'll ask my mom. Yeah. Do I, you do you have any questions about the mummies? I did want to. I do have a question. Has there been any agitating for burial of the women? Um, not that I've ever heard of. I feel like if there ever would be, it would be like me. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that was my initial response was like, has anyone? No, that's <sighs> not anything that I've seen discussion of. Well, let's, let's sit with that for another minute or two while we have a quick ad break and then more mummies. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back. I've got a couple more short cases here, sort of on very different ends of the the cultural spectrum. Uh, I will start with my best stab at pronunciation with Ivolginsky Datsan, a Russian Lama or Buddhist head priest. And so this comes from Atlas Obscura and as I've spelled it, Cutlier Trip, but it's actually Culture Trip. Um, so 
I looked up in three different places how to pronounce this man's name. And it's either Dashi Dorzo Itigilov or Dashi Dorzo Itigilov. I'm going to go with Itigilov, and I apologize if I'm wrong. In 1927, the 75-year-old Dashi Dorzo Itigilov announced it was time for his death. Itigilov, who was the 12th Pandito Kambo Lama, the titular head of the Buddhist faith in Russia, had the other lamas join him in meditation, and he died mid-meditation. His sitting body was set upright inside a wooden box and buried. Shortly thereafter, Buddhism was all but wiped from newly communist Russia. From records, we know that Itigilov was born in the countryside of Buryatia, an eastern Siberian republic of Russia. He lost his parents at a young age, which caused him to start working fairly early, herding sheep. At the age of 15, the young Itigilov decided to join the Aninsky Monastery, where he was granted a scholarship to study. Over the course of 20 years, he studied various subjects, learning Tibetan and Sanskrit, which enabled him to read Buddhist scriptures. Eventually, he began teaching in and serving the Buddhist community. Itigilov gradually rose to the top of the religious hierarchy in the region. He was well-respected among the lay people of Buryatia. He led an active social life, helping local causes and leading people spiritually. During the First World War, he carried out fundraising campaigns to help supply the soldiers with food and clothing. He also set up a medical center at the front line. In 1911, he was chosen to become the 12th Kamba Lama of Eastern Siberia, making him the religious leader of Russian Buddhists. So, fast forward. In 2002, Itigilov's body was exhumed, and it had also been secretly exhumed and checked on twice by the monks during the Soviet era. Uh, and then it was transferred in 2002 to the Ivolginsky Datsan, the most important Buddhist monastery in Russia. Itigilov's mummified remains are still there, sitting in the exact same lotus position as when he died more than three quarters of a century ago. Though his eyes and nose are now sunken, the body is nonetheless a wonder of preservation. Itigilov's body is kept in a glass case on an upper floor of the main temple. It is exhibited on Buddhist holidays only seven days of the year. So that's just a very short story. Um, if you you can look up, if you if you wish to, you can look up this uh, person. You can see photos of the remains. They are they appear to be quite well preserved. So it's very interesting. Uh, and then there's this guy. So again, thank you, Atlas Obscura. And uh, maybe the only other current world religion big wiggly question is mark it a, is besides it a new religious movement. It's a new religious movement, yeah. Uh, besides Buddhism, where mummification is a current practice, to my knowledge, again, uh, I couldn't think of any others, though there are certainly cultural practices involving like the disinterment of the dead, like on Sulawesi when they have the festival every year mm -hmm. where they bring out their uh, preserved ancestors. Um, but this is a much newer thing. I feel like thing. there's um, an island in, that's now in the Philippines where you're right. Yes, happens you're right. Still, like yep, a, yep, a yep, traditional yep, yep, practice. Yep. Mm -hmm. You're right. Well, I forgot that one. I think I have you to keep I me honest. two of us and all of yeah. our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yep, right in the dirt podcast at gmail.com. In 1975, Claude Corky Noel, I'm saying Corky, C O R K Y. I'm aware that it may sound like quirky or quarky, which, which all of which he certainly was. But Claude said he had an encounter with highly intelligent beings he called Summa individuals who revealed to him the true nature of the universe. He wasn't 
doing like Italian guy voice. Some individual. I found a some individual. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a spicy mama. That, that's quirky. Mm. <laughs> okay. No. Corky. That's not what happened. It's 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 different. Corky promptly changed his name to Summum Bonum Amun Ra, though he goes by the more casual Corky Ra, and founded the Summum religion. Based out of Salt Lake City, the Summum, which Summus is Latin highest, and Summum is a play on that. I don't know if it's a play, it's a I play. think it's just, it's just a it's different not a play. gender. It's just, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we've had a classical education. No, but I just like calling it a play on. Like it's not a pun. Referring it's to, just no, referring to gender as a play on. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway, the religion has its own principles of creation and laws of learning. To an outside observer, me, Summum resembles a blend of science fiction, encounters with aliens and cloning, New Age mysticism, and blend of ancient religions. It's a little bit. Um, You're talking about Crowley. Nope. You talking oh about? Oh my God! You talking about Von Daniken? You talking no, the about the one, the one who made his own religion? Um, no, going in the, the wrong science direction. fiction writer. You talking about L. Ron Hubbard? Yeah, I was like R. L. Stein. That's not right. <laughs> I knew there was an L and an R. Oh my poor brain. Yeah, it's a little L. Ron Hubbardy. Um, Summum draws many of its beliefs from Egyptian polytheism, with a particular emphasis on the sun god Ra, hence Corky's new name, though it also relies on the teachings of Gnostic Christians, Gnostic, such as those found in the Gospel of Thomas. Practicing the religion relies heavily on meditation, aimed at the summum goal of spiritual psychokinesis. Are you moving your soul or is you using your psyche to move things? I don't think you're, I didn't get the sense that they were trying to move things with their mind, but just maybe I'm wrong. Projecting. Perhaps. It seems more on brand with what the rest of this religion has going on. So now, I mean, here's why I'm subjecting you to all this. Okay. A I mean, I was, I was on board. <laughs> I know you were, but listeners, I'm talking to you listeners. Here's why we're going through all of this. I know you and I know you're like, yes, tell me more. A particular peculiarity of the church is that it practices modern mummification. It holds that mummification allows for a soul to smoothly depart from our world to the next. Additionally, it claims the modern mummification process they use preserves the cells and enables them to be cloned in the future. Oh, no. We're going to have Corky Park. <laughs> Na, 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 na. Look, it's Amun Ra. Uh, uh. For some um followers, reincarnation is a scientific as well as a spiritual concept. The Summum Pyramid, which you can go see, was built between 1977 to 1979 and serves as the church's main teaching space, meditation hall, and provider of modern mummification. The pyramid, like their religion, is, quote, sealed, except to the open mind, end quote. Curiously. And here's where we just take a wild spinning okay. left turn. Before, we, go, before okay. we take this turn, yes. this new religious movement has adherence? Yes. Well, we're going to get to that. Like, are there, I believe it does. Like people who are like faith-driven? So, But we will get there because, well, let, let me, I will point out this detail when we get to it. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, curiously, the pyramid itself, which incorporates the divine proportions into its measurements, is not zoned as a church. Huh? What are those? Like the, um, the divine proportions, like the um, golden ratio, that kind of thing. The idea of like mat- mathematical perfection. <laughs> so it's not zoned as a church, but as a bonded winery. This is so the pyramid can produce what the Summum Church calls nectar publications, alcoholic drinks used during meditation services. Nectar publications, and here's the thing that I wanted to point out, serve another purpose as well. Since the organization doesn't keep formal membership records, they base the number of people who have received the message of Summum on the number of wine bottles or publications they have distributed some 250,000 so far. So that's why I was like, I don't know. Are there people? I don't know. Okay. I mean, so like a bunch of, this might just be like a being like nice. Yeah. I'll take your, yeah. (laughs) Give me that wine. Uh, yeah, it may just be a giant winemaking grift, but also mummies question mark. I don't know. I just thought this was so interesting. Um, one last little bit. In early 2009, the church attracted national attention, don't remember it, during a legal scuffle with the city of Pleasant Grove, 35 miles south of Salt Lake City, within the Central City Park. That's Oh, that's true. Ugh, my 20s. (laughs) Within the Central City Park stands a large monument inscribed with the Ten Commandments. The Summum Church wrote to the mayor of Pleasant Grove with a proposal to erect its own monument inscribed with their seven aphorisms, <laughs> which are seen as restored extensions of the original Ten Commandments. So it's like the early bird gets the worm. <laughs> a stitch in time saves nine. Wear a coat when you go out. <laughs> See, I would, um, if I were like more confident that they had followers, I wouldn't be making these jokes, but it does sound like they are a winery. Winery. Have they <laughs> mummified anyone? That's what I want to know. Okay. But we'll get but to you, that. Okay. Also, okay. <laughs> also, this reminds me of that, that, uh, was it the church of Satan who, is this the same city park? That's like, we're also going to put up a Baphomet statue. There was like a 10 commandment that, statue uh, in no, the church of uh, Satan. Anna, I hate to break it to you, but there are a lot of 10 commandment statues in this country. Right, 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 right. right. Anyway, that also and the happened. Baphomet thing like ended up being like a huge like legal thing anyway because of it because of like who did it and why not just because like it's Satan but okay. I think that like Baphomet is is like more litigious okay his his, his, the, the, his darkness that, is litigious that <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> what if the recording just cut out oh, right no. now <laughs> like. Ah. In November 2008, Pleasant Grove City versus Summum went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. In February of 2009, the Supreme Court sided with the city, with Justice Alito's written opinion stating that a permanent public monument is perceived to be a declaration of the intentions of the local government. Thus, the city can decide if they agree with the tenets set forth on a monument or not. So here's just the last, like, mm, chef kiss. Mwah. To help make ends meet, the Summum Church offers mummification services to non-Summum members for those who, quote, yearn for something more, something that appeals to our sense of care and lasting peace of mind and with which we may feel secure, end quote. It offers the service to both humans and pets alike. Prices range from $67,000 for a person to as low as $4,000 for a pet under 15 pounds. Anna, why would you say that? I'm not telling you to mummify your dog. Go hug your no, dog. No, Let's pause. No, she's under the bed. 
<laughs> I'm not a mummy. Don't, don't mummify me. But have they mummified anyone? Is this just a grift? Let's pause for some ads and some light but furious Googling, and then we'll be back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, so we're back, and I'm upset. Um, and we've got <laughs> one Egyptian mummy in here for you. Um, so I, this episode has just been a roller coaster of different kinds of being upset. <laughs> so this new story just came out a couple days ago um, before we started on the script. Um, so it would be a shame not to include it because it is a topical. And so we've gone with uh, what Anna describes as ABC.net's coverage. Um, if you go to ABC.net, you can buy yourself a nice URL. <laughs> Uh, so it's oh. abc.com.co.au com.au so oh, this is why the, did i put dot net i don't know abc says quote <laughs> polish researchers examining an ancient egyptian mummy that they expected to be a male priest were surprised when x-rays and computer tests aka ct scans revealed that was me because they just put computer tests computer and I tests. read the i read the actual article i was like oh no they mean it's like this one you can type it must be a lady <laughs> revealed instead it was a well-preserved woman who had been seven months pregnant um so you know what they would have used if they were the uh, scanning a male a male mummy what? Y rays. Yeah, I get it. Because Y chromosome. <laughs> see what you did there. <laughs> so the scans showed four mummified bundles, likely her lungs, liver, stomach with intestines, and heart inside the female mummy. Those were extracted, embalmed, and then placed back inside the mummy's abdominal cavity, which was a customary practice in ancient Egypt. But the fetus had not been similarly removed from the uterus. Marzana Ozarek Silke, an anthropologist and archaeologist, told the Associated Press, quote, Our first surprise was that it has no penis, but instead it has breasts and long hair. And then we found out it's a pregnant woman. Um, they estimated the woman was between 20 and 30 years old and said the size of the baby's skull suggested she was 26 to 28 weeks pregnant. Their findings from the Warsaw Mummy Project of years of tests on this and other mummies at Warsaw's National Museum were published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Jazz. The researchers hypothesized that the fetus may have been thought of as, quote, still an, still an integral part of the body of its mother since it was not yet born, end quote. 
Um, a baby that didn't yet have a name may not have been thought of as an distinct individual, as ancient Egyptian beliefs held that naming was an important part of being human. The authors wrote, quote, thus its afterlife could only have happened if it had gone to the netherworld as part of its mother, end quote. Another hypothesis is that a fetus of that age would have been difficult to extract due to the thickness and hardness of the uterus, and so the people mummifying the mother may not have been able to extract the fetus without damaging her body or that of the fetus. The archaeologists are also not sure why this mummy was inside a male's coffin. However, it's thought that up to 10% of mummies are found in the wrong coffins due to illegal excavations and looting, according to the study. What's more, there was damage to the wrappings on the mummy's neck, likely caused by robbers who may have stolen some amulets, according to the study. The authors have called her the mysterious lady of the National Museum in Warsaw. Rolls rolls off the tongue. Uh, There's much that's unknown about her. Yep. And also she was in the National Museum in Warsaw. Um, The authors wrote, quote, her mummy represents a fine example of ancient Egyptian embalming skills, thus suggesting her high social standing. Um, And she was also buried with a rich set of amulets, according to the study, which... There were some still. still Yeah. So there was some um, damage suggesting that because, you know, it was wrapped in layers. And so there were lots of amulets throughout the layers. And it seems like outer ones were Mm. rifled through and removed. Yeah. Um, It's also not clear why she died. Although high mortality rates were a relative norm among pregnant women at the time. So her pregnancy may have been a factor. Yeah. It's a mystery. But since that story just came out. And we were working on a script about mummies. And I had been seemed... yelling mummies day for four and a half months. Literal months. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we we really were trying to kind of color outside the, the typical mummy lines. But, you know, somehow we ended up back with ancient Egyptian ones. Yeah. Oh, well, here we are. Yeah. But that's that's going to do it for, for mummies day. And we'll be back in your ears next week with more content, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. Hey, leave us a review. Yeah. Please and thank you. On Spotify, even on Audible now. And we're on we've there. made it. Do you listen on Audible? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But we're there. We're also on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, uh, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on IG, we're at the Dirt Pod. <laughs> Instagram. Yes. And if you don't want to go to all those places individually, you can just head over to the dirtpod.com where all of those social media feeds smoosh together on our website, which also has our back catalog with all years yes. of years of episodes. <laughs> so many years. So many years. Uh, it's almost our birthday. It's almost our birthday. But you know whose uh, birthday's coming got first? Yours. Mine. Excited. Uh We've got our back catalog. We've got our syllabus for educators in archaeology, anthropology, etc. We've got merch with silly and fun designs. And I have a design in my brain that I just haven't been able to get onto paper. Oh my God, I have one too. We could talk. You do? Yeah. Okay, great. Let's have a meeting. Okay. Not tonight. No, right right now. I just text it to you. Oh, great. Great, 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 great. (laughs) Cool. Cool production meeting. Well, that's going to do it, everyone. Uh, We've had our episode. We've had our meeting. I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. I'm going to go apologize to my dog. So, I'm so sorry for even hinting. <laughs> Making that me there cry. Might be. I'm so sorry. I don't want you to mummify your doggy. Oh, he said it again. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I want you to just love your dog. Okay, I'm going to go do that. Goodbye, everyone. We love you. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.